Hey everybody, welcome to 1000 Words, Stories on the Way. My name is Matthew Clark. Uh, This week and next week, I'll be sharing part one and then part two of a talk that I gave back in 2016 at an art and faith retreat called Cofferstow. Uh, So these episodes will be a little longer than the typical format for this podcast, so that's why I split split this talk in two. Um, A big theme for me at, at the time that I gave this talk was feeling like I had to justify pursuing art seriously. Most of my life, I felt like creative endeavors were were somewhat to be shunned as childish and immature on the one hand. And then on the other hand, if you did pursue them, to be an artist was kind of built up as this like elite thing. It was unattainable for a normal person. It's kind of strange, really, when you think about it that way. It was both seen as this wasteful, stupid thing and this lofty, unattainable goal at the same time. So in this talk, I'm trying to work out um, a different basis for understanding the call to live a creative life, uh, thinking of it as a real way of participating in Jesus's kingdom. It's not an immature thing to do, and it's not an elitist vision for like a lofty artist. The creative call is really a call to be uh, to be human through deep attentiveness to things like personhood, um, to stories, to God's way of living. Um, Pursuing an imaginative and creative life winds up being tied into practices that cultivate things like presence, listening, patience, care, which is to say hope, um, compassion, personhood, and love. Um, And then inevitably you'll meet resistance as you pursue these things because you're in a world that doesn't value them. Um, So that's why answering God's call to be creative uh, as the image bearers of our Creator, it's going to clash. So that's that's kind of the idea, and I'll share some personal stories in this talk of of, of kind of coming to those conclusions. Uh, So here is part one this week of a talk entitled Paying Attention costly craft of redemptive listening. This morning what I want to talk about is a wider definition of what of what it is to be an artist because I know that even at breakfast this morning we were talking about I had this long struggle most of my 20s were just struggling with feeling illegitimate in this desire to be an artist. And that was really hard for me. And I feel like part of what helped was learning from scripture, learning from other believers, learning from community, a, a bigger definition of, of art that, uh, that I found that there was room for me in that. So by the end of this, that's what I hope is kind of a, you can find something that you, you felt like you were not included in, that there's room for you in that. Is that cool? Cool. Um, let me pray real quick. Lord, uh, I pray that meditations in my heart, the words that uh, I say, I pray that in every way you would be magnified and that people would know who you are, what you've done, and uh, 
would be able to taste and smell and see and touch and hear a little bit of your coming kingdom now in this place and hear your invitation to uh, participate in Christ's name. Amen. So can I tell you guys a story of the time I was reprimanded by a little Mexican woman in a church in Juarez? (laughs) So we went on this trip, some students uh, from uh, college, and we went out to this kind of dusty, it looked abandoned strip mall in Juarez, Mexico. And we go to this little church in one of the rooms in the strip mall, and it was kind of this white tile room, and it was maybe as long as this room, a little skinnier. And at one end, there was a stage, and there was like the worst praise band ever. I think the drummer was like eight years old, you know, and they had just cobbled all this stuff together. And that's another story about how I got really humbled about being really arrogant about worship music, because I looked around and everybody was just in it. And I was like, oh, maybe it's my decision to decide to worship or not. And we had to, we were going to do a skit in this place. And so I had to go get changed to be in the skit. And I had my Bible in my hand. And I looked around and there weren't any tables. And so I just put my Bible on the floor in the back of the room. And then like this hurricane of a woman just came up to me. And and she grabbed my Bible off the floor And she handed it back to me, and she just started uh, spilling over in this, like, mixture of Spanish and English. And she was telling me that you don't put the Bible on the floor. And and I felt terrible, of course. (laughs) But, and I want to make a point to say, I don't think she was suggesting something like superstition. Like, superstition is kind of like idolatry. And idolatry is manipulating God. So I don't think that not putting your Bible on the floor or putting your Bible on the floor is going to make God do something or not do something. Like, we don't need to control God because He loves us, and you also can't control Him anyway. (laughs) But what did happen is she made me notice my Bible in a way that I hadn't noticed it before. She made me kind of respect it in some different kind of way. Um, and that really stuck with me. Even today, I still think about that. If I have my Bible, I'm like, where am I going to put it? That Mexican lady would be really mad if I put it on the floor. <laughs> so I have a tiny you know, Mexican woman on my shoulder. <laughs> uh, not actually, but yes. <laughs> and then there's another story. Um, this is from eighth grade, and I think it's kind of a similar story of I was with my grandmother, and we went in this bookstore. And at that time, any bookstore we went into, the first place I was going to go was to the fantasy section to look for Lord of the Rings. Anything Tolkien, I was going to sniff it out. And so I went there, and there was this incredibly beautiful one-volume red leather-bound Lord of the Rings. And it was so beautiful. It had like the dwarvish runes on the front and like flowing elvish lettering and embossed in gold on the cover. And even like the pages were like cleaner than any other book. And so I just begged her to buy this for me. And it wasn't cheap. It was like, it was probably almost $100. And I think I was eighth grade. I said, so she bought this for me. And 
it sits on the top shelf today. If you go in my little studio where I have a bookshelf, like that copy of Lord of the Rings is on the top shelf in this kind of sacred place, you know, uh, because that's such an influential book to me. But those two stories for me are, are stories of where here's, a, here's some thing that has become very special. It stands out. It's something I, um, I pay attention to in a particular way. Uh, I notice it. Um, and so today what I want to talk about is this question of paying attention to things. Um, when we revere something like the Bible or the Lord of the Rings, when we respect something, when we have reverence, what does that mean? What does it mean to pay attention? Uh, what is the cost of attention? And if you're buying attention, attentiveness, then what, what are you paying for? Has anybody ever read James K.A. Smith, Jamie Smith, Imagining the Kingdom? I haven't, but I've heard it's awesome. <laughs> Uh, I do that a lot. I don't actually read the people that I quote. I just, <laughs> but I did go on a retreat, and Jamie Smith was the speaker. And I've listened to some podcasts. And one of the things that he says is, what you do with your body is a spiritual act. That when you kneel to pray or when you bow in certain parts, that your physical activity is actually shaping and creating some sort of spiritual reality. Um, and you've seen this in Romans 12, right? Do you remember Romans 12? Uh, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. This is your physical act of worship. This is your bodily act of worship. And he says, when you offer your bodies, this is your spiritual act of worship. So what you do with your body is spiritual. That's really interesting to me. And if you don't believe that, think about when you're in a conversation with somebody and you're going to like pour your heart out and that person, um, they're bent over their cell phone and they're not making eye contact. And so how does that make you feel in your spirit judging by what their body is doing? Right? You can feel that they're not, in, they're not with you, right? And on the other hand, have you ever said, hey, I need to tell you something? And the person says, oh, let me put my cell phone down. Let me turn the TV off. And then they turn their body toward you. And they make eye contact and they put their hands on the table and they lean in. And you know by what they're doing with their body that they're making some kind of space for your story, right? So what you do with your body is spiritual. What that means is the material world has value that extends far beyond mere materiality into spiritual and therefore eternal value. Let me say that again. I just like to say it. That means that the material world has value that extends far beyond mere material into spiritual and therefore eternal 
value. So the point of seeing, um, seeing the Bible as special in Mexico or the point of protecting liturgy in the church uh, is to teach us ultimately how to really protect and pay attention to and revere people, persons, other persons. Um, if we do not reverence relationship with people, um, then we have embraced love's opposite. Do you know what love's opposite is? Indifference? Yeah. It's not hate. It's apathy. The opposite of caring is carelessness. I couldn't care less about that. To be apathetic. Uh, and apathy, since we're talking about creativity, apathy is like this ultimate creativity killer. Because in order to make something, you have to care. And so we want to love. Um, one example of this that I think is really interesting is uh, depression. So let's talk about depression for a minute. A <laughs> but somebody pointed this out recently, um, that when you're depressed, your heart has been wounded in some way, but the pain is too painful. And so it's really hard to feel the pain because it hurts. And so we depress those feelings of hurt so that we don't have to feel them as much because it's difficult. Um, it's a way of coping. We kind of squash our hearts down into a state of apathy uh, where nothing matters. Um, I've been, uh, one of my favorite authors lately has been a lady named Esther Lightcap Meek, which is an awesome name. <laughs> and uh, she said this. She said, we don't really know who we are until we find ourselves caught in the loving gaze of another person. I think this is kind of like saying it's not good for a human to be alone. We don't really know who we are until we're caught in the loving gaze of another person. And then I think about John, the beloved disciple. And I've always had this question in my heart, like, what did that guy know? What did he see about Jesus in the time that he spent with him? Because John says... Uh, in 1 John, he says, we love because he first loved us. And I don't think that's, I mean, that is a real catchy phrase. That sounds great, right? But I don't think that John is just speaking this cliched phrase. I think he's, he's really talking from this very personal experience. I mean, this guy traveled around with Jesus. He saw Jesus' actual physical material face and body turned toward him in those years of traveling and of ministry. And that changed John's spiritual reality. So that John is called the beloved disciple. He's called beloved. Um, and so even uh, Jesus is physical. With, what Jesus does with his body creates a spiritual reality for John of belovedness. I really want to share a personal story, okay? I want to tell you about my, my real dad. My real dad who I just met a few years ago. Actually, my dad has been around my whole life. He's a super stable, responsible uh, dad. He's very consistent. He's a great guy. But he's also very private. And has anybody read Wendell Berry? In this room, I bet you have. 
Wendell Berry writes about small town agrarian culture life in the early part of last century. And he writes kind of about this town in Kentucky. And it's beautiful. So I've always said that my dad is a Wendell Berry character. And he just doesn't know it. Because I feel like the people that Wendell Berry writes about would never read a Wendell Berry book. You know, they would just, they just live in them. These small town folks. And so my dad, here's a little bit about my dad. Uh, He is from a small town in Mississippi. He built a house on the family land, maybe a half a mile from the house he was literally born in. Uh, He... He took the job at the Department of Agriculture that his dad had occupied. He's a tree farmer. Uh, so that starts to paint a little picture like he is a Wendell Berry character. And, and actually we, reading Wendell Berry, like something clicked in my mind. I was like, oh, that's my dad. Because in there it's like beautiful. These people are beautiful. And I've always been frustrated with my dad because he was this... Uh, um, I was this brooding and artsy, like sensitive, you know, like uh, guitar playing bookworm, you know. And my dad is this total opposite. He's this very practical, hardworking uh, guy. And so we had a hard time connecting. That was difficult for me. Um, he's kind of a man's man. About four years ago, my dad, uh, my dad asked my brother Sam and I to come out and help him plant trees at the farm. And my dutiful good brother was like, yes, I will help you plant those trees. And I was like, I think I've got something better to do. And I didn't, I said, I'm not gonna go. And it's a couple hours drive, but honestly, like, I just didn't want to. I just didn't feel like it. And so Sam goes, and then the next morning I wake up and I'm like, I should go. I don't want to go. I felt really guilty. So I got in the car, and I drove down, and I showed up in the field, and they had already been working for a while, and uh, Sam was really glad to see me, because he was the only helper, and Dad was glad to see me, too. They handed me this post hole digger, showed me the process, here's how you put the tree in there without killing it, and, and we worked that day. But there was a moment in the afternoon do you, do you know how it's like, it's like somebody just pours honey over everything and there's a certain time in the afternoon when it just everything turns kind of gold and it's like, it's like every 70s photograph, you know? <laughs> and for some reason I had to go to the other side of the field and I was over there probably 150 yards from my dad looking over all these baby trees. We planted a couple hundred trees and there's my dad working. And um, I, I don't know what happened, but something just broke open. And I thought, here, I'm surrounded by these baby trees. There's my dad. And when these trees are grown, I'm going to be my dad's age. And my dad is going to be gone. Long gone. And this feeling of, you know what it's like to, to really miss someone. Uh, if you've ever missed someone so bad, like you couldn't eat for a few days. And it just washed over me. I just had this feeling of like missing him. 
And I could see him. I was looking at him. But I missed him. And I realized that, um, that I had been, I had left my dad on the dusty floor like a boring unread book. I had just not paid any attention to him. I had, I had not respected him. I had not reverenced him. And, um, but I really missed him in that moment. And I, I sensed like he's edging towards older age and I'm running out of time. And so I decided uh, I wanted to start respecting him, start paying attention. So I want to talk about reverence and respect. The word respect means to re Spect, and spect is where we get words like spectacles and spectators. So spect means to look at something, right? And then to re-spect means to look again and to look again and to kind of bend over and look a little bit closer at that thing. And the reason you look at something is because you expect to find something good there. And with my dad, I had not expected to find anything good there. So I wasn't respecting him. I wasn't looking for anything good from him. And in that moment, I realized, I think there might be something beautiful about my dad. And I want to start paying attention to him. Um, I didn't want to miss that anymore. Here's another quote from uh, Esther Lightcap Meeks. Three words. Write this down because this is so simple and so great. Uh, Listening evokes stories. Listening evokes stories. Uh, Jeff Conrad, we were talking this morning, you were talking about listening to a man in the nursing home tell a story. And it just struck me like, you're so good at that. Like you really create space. And because of that, you have these great stories and these great songs that come out of that. And so that's part of what I want to talk about is that... uh, When someone is listening to you, you can feel that, right? You can feel that they're creating a space for your story. And so what happens next? You know, maybe I talk too much because (laughs) I'm like, oh, you're listening? Great. (laughs) But that's really true. You you can feel that they're uh, unhurried listening. It's calling out what I want to say are shy stories. Our stories are kind of shy. Um, and patience is a form of hospitality where the hospitable space is not made out of this stuff, but it's made out of time. It's made out of minutes and hours. But then, if you get that part, the next thing you're going to run up against is, I don't have time to be patient. Right? Time is money. Isn't it? And then, if that's the truth, then patience is going to cost going to cost us something. Attentiveness is very valuable. So we have to be willing to pay for it. That's why we say pay attention. Uh, Attentiveness is sacrificial and a sacrifice is a costly payment. God says to the Israelites, hey, don't bring me your like half dead lamb. Bring me me a good lamb because I want to know that this matters to you. Um, because we get kind of what we're willing to put in. That's just true of relationships. That's true of everything. And if we're unwilling to pay for attention, the stories will never be evoked. They're too shy. They won't come out of the turtle shell otherwise. 
They won't still feel safe enough to emerge. And I'll land on this right here. People are shy stories. People are shy stories. I want to just make a note of this. If there's a version of something, then there is a perversion. So if there's a rotted apple, it means somewhere in the world there's a good apple. It's not the other way around, by the way. You don't need a rotted apple uh, in order to have good apples. But you do have to have good apples in order to have rotted apples. Evil does need good. Good doesn't need evil. But uh, if there's a version, there's a perversion. Have you ever been pushed to tell your story? Have you ever been manipulated or guilt-tripped? Um, that's somebody trespassing against you. They're trying to extract your story using force. But attention is loving. Trespassing is demanding. And we don't feel safe. We don't feel respected when someone insists rather than invites. Stories are shy and they are most responsive to loving attentiveness. Let me say this. A heart is a really tender thing. And the person who squeezes it will never know what it's really about. They will never know the truth about it. A heart is a tender thing. The hand that squeezes it carelessly will never know the real truth about it. So that was part one. And uh, next week, we'll pick up where we left off, finish this talk. Meanwhile, visit matthewclark.net slash 1000words to leave comments and interact. Uh, On iTunes, subscribe to the podcast and leave a review if you're enjoying it. That helps kind of promote the podcast. Um, I think that's all. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next week. Mm